The Shannon Speed Series is back and heading to Race Phillip Island on April 12 to 14. And we can save you 15% on tickets. Head to motorsporttickets.com.au, enter the promo code SLUTH15 in the box, and you'll be seeing a lineup of cars and categories that's bursting at the seams. There's the Fanatec GT World Challenge Australia powered by AWS, the super cheap auto TCR cars, Trico Trans Ams, Monochrome GT4, Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge, and the Workhorse Radical Cup in a packed schedule of racing. Friday's free, 35 bucks for Saturday or Sunday, $60 for a weekend pass for adults, kids 15 under are free. It's great value for the whole family to enjoy, and that's before you use the special Sleuth promo code. Be there for Race Phillip Island, April 12 to 14. Book now at motorsporttickets.com.au. For the latest in Australian and World Rally news, join me, Luke Witten, from Rally Sport Magazine on the Special Stage Rally Podcast every week. It's news, insight and analysis with big names in the sport joining us regularly to talk rallying of all sorts. Catch the Special Stage Rally Podcast now, available via the Motorsport Podcast Network on all your regular podcast apps. Hi everyone, I'm Aaron Noonan. Welcome to the V8 Sleuth podcast powered by Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now my guest on the podcast this episode is none other than the Wollongong Wiz, the 1987 500cc world motorcycle champion and car racer, Wayne Gardner. Now, so much of Wayne's two-wheel career has been covered in so many other places. Of course, the, the doco movie a couple of years ago, Wayne, covered his bike years, so We've decided here on the podcast to take a look a bit closer at his car racing portion of his career. Now, in part one of the podcast, we talk about a bunch of stuff. We talk about his first drive of a touring car, which was not a Commodore, it was a Mazda RX-7. We talk about joining touring car racing full-time in the V8 series, his tumultuous time with HRT and his relationship with John Crennan starting up Wayne Gardner Racing as well is another topic that we'll cover quite heavily in this part as well. Part two, we'll talk about his final appearance in a V8 supercar at Mount Panorama in 2002 with Stone Brothers and the shunt that, well, pretty much scared him a little bit from the mountain and racing and in the end he didn't end up back in a V8 supercar ever again. We talk about his Formula One test in the early 90s with Lotus and the subsequent meeting he had with Bernie Eccleston. We will challenge him with the National Motor Racing Museum Couch Racer questions and, of course, the Motor Focus Top 10 Shootout. Now, Wayne, of course, is in Monaco, where he's been a long-time resident over the years, so this interview was down the phone line uh, just this week, in fact. So here we go. Buckle up. Time to start part one of Wayne Gardner on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. Wayne Gardner, V8 Sleuth Podcast. Good to chat to you, mate. It's been a long time since we've we've seen or heard. I know that there's plenty going on in the world now and we're all a bit locked down and we're not going anywhere and we're uh, not living the lives that we would normally like to live. But um, thanks for taking some time. I wanted to focus on the car racing element of your career. I mean, your, your bike stuff, we will touch on a little bit. It's been clearly very well done over the years. Uh, what, where did your car racing, what was the first race car you, you ever drove? Because I... I honestly can't seem to remember. That's a good question, Aaron, um, and good chatting to you. Uh, the first proper race car, 
that I drove. I mean, I've driven sprint cars. I've driven Formula Ford. Um, I've driven touring cars in Europe uh, prior to the Australian, you know, V8 series and then Japan. Um, I've driven Le Mans, uh, uh, the 24-hour race. Um, you know, I've done a lot of things uh, over the years, but thinking back, I suppose my first car would be when I had a go-kart way back before I was riding motorbikes. I actually started off in karting, um, but around a school area and um, with a, a go-kart with my mate and with a lawnmower engine in it. <laughs> I suppose that's the, the very, very beginning. I was about 12 years of age, and that's where my love love of uh, you know petrol-driven vehicles started. Uh, my dad's a truck driver, and I was, and my mum um, worked in cafes. But I've always had a history around vehicles or transport or big vehicles, you know, trucks mm. and so on. So that's where the passion for the motoring world comes, because you know I would go to work with my dad in the truck sometimes, and um, and loved it. And and of course that's where the the go kart thing started when my mate got one, and I asked my dad, could I have one? And he um, decided, and he, there used to be a little uh, workshop around the corner from where we lived in Wollongong, in Ferry Meadow, the, the area. And uh, he would work on his truck there on the weekends because he was an owner operator. And I asked him, told him about this go kart my mate had, and can I have one? And so we got a Victor lawnmower engine and bought some tyres, and they got a bit of scrap steel and built this thing out of. Um, and so I was riding it around and around in all the industrial areas and with the police chasing me and <laughs> then I needed money for petrol and needed money for petrol so I then started uh, I was in love with cars then and vehicles any vehicles you know anywhere from big trucks downwards and uh, so then I was looking for petrol so I started collecting scrap scrap material you know like aluminium cans and brass and copper and wire and whatever and I'd go and cash it in and while I was doing that one day, um, down in a place called North Wollongong there, um, in some industrial areas, they light industrial areas, I asked, I seen a bike half buried down the back of this this um, yard and I walked in with my mate and I said, oh, what's that? And they went, oh, it's a bike with no back wheel and a rusted engine. I said, oh, can I have it? And he goes, no, I'll sell it to you for five bucks because I want a beer. And um, probably bought, would have bought you ten beers by then. So... <laughs> uh, and so I can, ran home, told my mum, and we went halves in the motorbike, the rusted old bike, and my mate's dad was an engineer, and he fixed the engine, and we advertised in the local paper, and that's where the love of bikes started, you know, basically because of karting and petrol and four wheels and so on. So I've always had a, a big history in cars, but I suppose to be more precise of when was my first race car, I'd say before I came back, uh, to Australia um, at the end of 92, at the end of my career, I did a couple of touring car races in Germany for BMW um, with Jägermeister sponsorship. And I drove the Linda team, Linda BMW team. And they, I did a couple of races in their M3 BMW in the two-litre uh, touring car series. And I loved it. And I was competing. I mean, I wasn't winning races against all the top drivers, but I actually loved it and I was fast and, and then that kind of blossomed from there, you know. Mate, we've gone right back through the magazine files and we found something, and I don't know if you remember this or not, 
But there was a story about you testing Peter McLeod's Slick 50 Mazda RX-7 out at Oran Park. Do you remember that at all? I do remember that. Actually, I forgot about it. I think that probably would have been just about the beginning of it all. Um, what year was that? That's a very uh, good question. I reckon um, 83, 84, somewhere in that realm. Yeah, that would be about right. That, that's actually probably the first time. Actually, you know my life better than myself, Sarah. <laughs> Do you remember how that all came to be? Peter McLeod was a, a really top-running privateer with a, an RX-7 Mazda, and he was <laughs> he's from up your way, so that sort of makes sense. Do you remember much about how that came together? That's right. He was from, he was from the gold. Yeah, that's what I, I completely forgot about that. That comes as a surprise, but you're right. Um, that was because I was in the newspaper a lot down there in Wollongong, um, in the Illawarra Mercury all the time, and so was Peter McLeod because he was the local four-wheel guy. And um, and somewhere or other, we come across each other, and I was always in love with cars, as you heard, from starting from about the age of 12, and, um, and trucks and whatever. And uh, he said to me, I... You know, I was going fast at that point and starting to make a career for myself on the two wheels. And, and then he, he asked me or something. I can't remember the details. But he asked me, would I like to have a drive? And I went, oh, fuck yeah. It would be great fun, you know. I always wanted to go and drive a racing car. And uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I, and he was prepared to put me in it and, you know, support me and try and uh, help me to be a good driver. But... It was good fun, but my heart still lied in motorcycles, and you know I laid in that for many, many years. So when my career started, uh, I mean finished with motorcycles. When it finished with bikes, um, as I said, I had the opportunity because I, I was a world champion and had lots of options. Uh, they, uh, my friend uh, Steve Soper and Armin Hahn and a few of those German guys, um, Winkler and you name it, they were just said come and have a drive in touring cars, and that's where the more professional stage come, and obviously because I had to find a commit to focusing on, in, on on the cars then. I found a ripping photo that reminded me too that they let you loose in a Formula Ford at the Adelaide Grand Prix one year. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. <laughs> wow, that's a bit different. Uh, well, well, it was. Um, a guy in Wollongong again, Jeff Walters. Uh, had a Formula Ford and asked would I like to drive the thing uh, down at the Adelaide Grand Prix. And I went, uh, yeah, why not? I said, I've always wanted to try a, a, sing, a, a single-seater. And um, I went down there. In fact, I was very fast. I nearly could have won the thing, but one guy decided to have me off rather than um, play fair. So uh, in the first chicane down the start-finish, I was, I think I was fighting up in the top three. Uh, in fact, I think I was maybe even challenging for the lead. I can't remember now, but certainly I was quick. And uh, he punted me off. In fact, both of us went off into the into the sand, him and I, and he, he, he ran in the ballet back wheel that turned into the first chicane and um, we both bunkered it. So, uh, but, you know, that gave me the insight to see that I could be competitive in a very short time. So I knew that, you know, I had, a, I had definitely a skill in cars and then it was just, how much did I want to take it? But by that time, um, I was uh, just playing with the, with the idea to see if I, what I wanted to do in the future. Mm. And once I started to see that, you know, I was certainly quick, um, that I could, uh, with with no real skills in cars, it was just a matter of time to understand what I've got. So, as I said, when the time came at the end of my bike career, at the end of 92, I decided to go and do a few more things in cars. 
one of the things I really loved a couple of years ago, I think it was what two years ago that the biopic movie came out, which was a great insight into the career that you had. And obviously the focus was on the bike racing and um, a little bit yeah. of vision that really caught my eye was I think you were filming a, a Swan beer ad out at Calder Park on the Honda NSR 500, but they used as the camera yeah. car a mobile Peter Brock touring car. And it popped up in the vision and it caught my eye because I'm a nerd for this stuff. But I, I, yeah. I've looked through these magazines and there were some yarns at the time that you were going to have a test drive of a Brock HDT mobile Commodore, but you had stuff going on because at that time, 87 was a kind of a big year in your world. After all, you did win the world championship. Yeah. Uh, was that going to happen or yeah. you were going to have a test for Brock? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Brocky, I, I met, I was always a fan of Brockies and, and may I say, I was always a fan of, you know, the Bathurst 1000 and um, I always seen myself or wanting to do it one day. So I had a big interest in touring cars and like most people in Australia, we're all huge fans of Peter Brock. Um, and in that time, I got to meet him. Um, he was kind of really interested in what I was doing with bikes. Uh, I had a factory bike down there doing the promotional things for the coming year. Uh, may I say, the 88 bike wasn't very good, so <laughs> I kept complaining to him when we were down there going, there's something wrong with this because it just le- keeps leaving rubber everywhere and there's no grip. Anyway, a long story short, that's another long story that I won't go into now. But, uh, um, yeah, and I got to know Peter uh, down there and uh, obviously got to sit in his car and I I can't remember if I had a little drive. I think I might have actually had a little blast around it, you know, just to see what it was like uh, in the – because he was assisting us, you know. And um, and then, you know, I, I became friends with, with Pete and um, we stayed friends for forever and a day, you know. So uh, – and it, but I was more focused on trying to win world titles and bikes at the time. I mean, having a, a taste test, a litmus test was just – part of what I was doing and that's why the former Ford then the touring cars and then I started to realize all out of all the little tries of things that you know like I've got the skills of bike riders is the same as cars you know not everybody who adapts um and there's been lots that haven't adapted um from two wheels to four wheels but there's not many that's adapted from four wheels to two wheels so uh, but I I felt that I had the skills and the interest to to follow up in cars and have a bit of fun and and you know I also use cars and touring cars and having as as a as a distraction because if I gave up the bike cold turkey in '92 I knew that if I go and didn't do something that was competitive that I'd be tempted and lured back into GP within the next year or two, or even superbikes, you know. Mm. Um, I had good offers to stay. Um, I had good offers to go to superbikes. But, you know, I, I didn't want to go there because I was sick of the injuries and I was sick of the travel, and I wanted to do something to try another challenge, and another challenge that I could be competitive at, and, and, and I've got a very competitive nature. Oh, really? And it still is, you know. Yeah, and... <laughs> Um, I, <laughs> um, it hasn't gone, by the way. It's still as 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 alive as it has been when I was a, a teenager, you know. So, but I'm focusing on different things now. And um, but yeah, I I, I still have a, a passion for cars, and a bit like my son Remy now. He's building cars, and you know, he's an incredible little engineer now. Besides, he's a, a Grand Prix rider, so. 
you know, the apple doesn't far, fall far from the tree. So, yeah, no, it's um, it, it's been a fun journey, and, I, and I'm lucky to have been successful in both, you know, the two wheels and four wheels. You mentioned about 92, the last year that you rode in, in the 500ccs, and you turned up at Bathurst in a, a deal with Graham Moore. Remember the Strathfield car radios, the Red Commodore, which obviously wasn't the wasn't the I fastest did. car in the field. But how did that deal come together? Because Maury had an amazing way of stringing together and bringing together all sorts of big ticket deals. Because he brought Frank Williams and the Renault Lagunas later on to the the Super Touring Bathurst. He got you involved. He pulled together some big deals. How did he swing that one? Uh, well, I was living over in Manly uh, at that time, um, and. Uh, I don't know. He just—I got to know him. Um, he contacted me and we chatted, and he just said, "Do you want to go and drive a Bathurst?" And I went, "Well, I used to sit there as a kid and watch Bathurst on TV, and I thought that'd be so fun, so cool to do." And um, one day, when I'm, you know, finished with the bikes, and uh, and then that come along, I thought, "Hmm, be good to go and learn the track and understand it." And however, I did do a bike race there one year, but. You know, I, I think the bike seized on about the second or third lap, so I didn't have any success. But for bikes, it's very, very dangerous, you know. Um, but for cars, it looks really cool and it's great fun. So I used it as an opportunity to go out there and, again, as a litmus test, see how I'd get on and see if my skills are any good and see if that these guys are doing something that I couldn't do, and um, which I'm sure they weren't. And uh, I, I went up there to, to really gauge myself on, on what would happen. But don't forget, prior to that, I had a little run in the Dogbone Honda. Do you remember that, Eric? Mm, uh, Honda NSX, which actually uh, was the, the Palmer's proddy car, which actually was the next year. That was the start of 93 at the 12-hour in Easter when you were with oh, HRTs. Okay. But it was all around, right. The, right, right. All, all around yeah. the same time. That's right. It was the following year. And, um, yeah, I don't know. When, when Graham was, I went, yeah, why not? Let's go and try. And uh, Graham's a good guy. Um, he's from the Manly area where I was living, and um, we just formed a relationship. And in fact, he was only—he only called me a couple of days ago, telling me he's got his new man cave in Manly or somewhere now, and or Dy, and uh, uh, and he's got photos of that that car and pictures of me driving it, and pictures of me on bikes, and my son Remy on the wall now, and in his man cave. So that's pretty funny timing that you ask me this now. <laughs> Small world. Small world. That that that, mm, that race that is. day, the, the weather was horrendous. You picked the worst one to probably make your first one. And, of course, the same day, Denny Helm had a heart attack and, and passed away the 67 F1 world champ. And Jim Richards delivered his infamous line of, you're all a pack of assholes on the uh, on the rostrum. It was it was a momentous day. What do you remember about the actual actual day and all the things that unfolded? Uh, for the weekend, you mean. <laughs> it's not just the day. Well, true. Um, for the race. Yeah, uh, it all kind of started with my eyes were big and bright and wasn't sure how I'd, how I'd wheel this, you know, 1,500-kilo car around the track. So, uh, And I knew the car wasn't a very competitive car, but it was okay just to go and get the experience, which was perfect. So I was happy just to fall into the background um, and certainly not go there with any expectations. And um, I, I just went there and had a good time, you know. I uh, had a good laugh with Graham and the team and... You know, it was a it was a lightweight, you know, uh, team, but it was a good way of getting started, and um, I just seen it as good learning experience. I remember the weather, changing weather conditions. I remember there was many breakdowns uh, on the car like that, um, but generally it was all just a bit of fun. I, I tried not to zoom in on the 
trying to be too competitive. Um, it was more just an eye opener for me to see what people were doing. You know, I some fast guys come by and I try to follow them in the corners, and um, I could see they were doing nothing different than I was doing, and you know, trying to improve on little areas. And every time somebody fast came by, I try and follow them for, even for a corner or two. You know, just to learn something. So, and that's all just part of the learning curve. The Shannon Speed Series is back and heading to Race Phillip Island on April 12 to 14. And we can save you 15% on tickets. Head to motorsporttickets.com.au, enter the promo code SLUTH15 in the box, and you'll be seeing a lineup of cars and categories that's bursting at the seams. There's the Fanatec GT World Challenge Australia powered by AWS, the Super Cheap Auto TCR cars, Trico Trans Ams, Monochrome GT4, Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge and the Workhorse Radical Cup in a packed schedule of racing. Friday's free, 35 bucks for Saturday or Sunday, $60 for a weekend pass for adults, kids 15 under are free. It's great value for the whole family to enjoy and that's before you use the special sleuth promo code. Be there for Race Phillip Island, April 12 to 14. Book now at motorsporttickets.com.au. Where did um, where did the wheels start rolling that you ended up? I mean, you went from driving a privateer Commodore to a factory Commodore within a couple of months. How did the deal for you to drive at the Holden Racing Team come together? Well, after Maury's thing, um, then I drove, as you said, the Dogbone Honda uh, thing came along with Ian Palmer. And um, I was competitive in that. I think we finished third outright and one out fast or something like that. And... Um, although I did put it into the wall up at the top, pushing too hard, looking for more, because um, the thing wasn't very fast, but I was trying to make it up around the corners and get any experience at the track. However, um, they damaged it a lot, and they got it back together, and we went on to a, uh, a good victory or in our class, I think, and overall third place, I'm sure it was, third, fourth, something like that. And... Um, uh, I and then and then straight after that, uh, I had a call from from Holden, um, from John Crennan, if I remember correctly, and uh, he wants to know did I want to if, if I was my career's finished in bikes and I was going to stay in Australia, did I want to come and have a test in their car with Thomas Mazera? And I went, wow, that sounds pretty cool. Uh, I haven't driven a full, I mean, a really good car, you know. For a number of years, and um, and I went down there, and uh, we went to where was it? We went to Calder, I think. I can't remember first. Uh, I know we were at Phillip Island in the car, and um, I ended up being, I think, quicker than Thomas. You know, so uh, so after that day, they were looking for me to bring sponsorship of Coca Cola at that time. And um, and I, but after how fast I was. They came and just offered me a contract straight away as a factory driver in in uh, eighty three, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, eighty three. Uh, no, so, ninety three. Yeah, yeah. Uh, ninety three. Sorry, sorry, ninety three. Yeah. And um, I, I was sort of a little bit shocked that they wanted me, and I went, "Okay, why not?" So uh, I decided to do it because I was looking for something to be competitive in, but not get bike racing, as I said. And uh, I signed up with Creno and HRT, um, thinking it was the, the fantastic team and on the provision that I would get lots of testing 
and I could go out and, you know, get lots of mileage and uh, get used to the car and make changes so that I can understand where the limits are and everything. And um, But that didn't quite happen. <laughs> they just threw me straight into the racing and, uh, and then I got bashed around and I guess through inexperience, not understanding the car well enough and basically not enough mileage under my belt um, to go out into the competitive world of touring cars at that time. However, what it did show me is that with a limited time, then I was not so far off the pace and pretty close, you know. So, uh, and Thomas was a was a lead lead driver in the championship, and I was his teammate, and I was just as quick, and if not in some places faster than Thomas. So, I, all I wanted was more time in the car, and then that's where the frustration built in during the year, and um, because it was owned by Tom uh, Walkinshaw, Tom Walker, uh, Tom. Walkinshaw, and uh, so I was then got in. I had a bit of a bad patch where I, I was just begging them for them to give me testing time, and they wouldn't because they had no money. And um, then Holden, by oh, I've forgotten his name, one of the bosses of Holden called me and said, "Oh, how's it all going?" And I said, "Well, I'm not happy. So, well, keep me in touch if you're not happy. Let's, let's see how we can help you." And then um, they, I called them up mid-year and I just said, look, you know, this isn't going as good as what I expected. Um, uh, Crennan said that I'll be testing and get catch up the mileage and understand the bike and the team and understand because I want to be competitive, I want to win. And I said, and that's not happening. And they were blaming budgets and uh, as they normally do. And, uh, and I said, I'm not asking for a light. And so then I told Holden and they just went, well, we'll try. And next minute... Um, Holden come back to me and said, oh, we're looking for a sponsorship. We're not happy with Walkinshaw. Um, would you like to – can you find some sponsorship? And we're looking for, you know, to pair away from Walkinshaw. And I went, oh, really? And uh, this was t- towards the end of, of uh, uh, 93. And I said, um, well, what are you looking for? And I said, oh, I've got some ideas. And that was obviously Coca-Cola at the time, um, who was a personal sponsor of mine. And um, – and they said, oh, look, we're not happy the way it's running. And, you know, and I said, neither am I. And because there's no testing, there's no this and that. And they um, came back to me later and said, well, if you come up with some sponsorship, um, a lot of sponsorship, um, we're not, you can take over the team. I went, what? And they came to me and put the deal to me saying, can you, can you put the team together and, um, We'll go with you instead of walking short. So I started doing that, and that's when all the big shit fight happened with Crennan and and Holden and and um, Tom Walkinshaw. So in essence, the seeds that were sown for what became WGR, as we as we later knew it, was actually to be yeah. the factory Holden Holden Racing Team or Coca Cola Holden Racing Team or whatever you wanted to call it. That's correct. I sold it to Coca Cola that you could have your name and rights all over the over the HRT team, and um, that was getting towards Bathurst. So I was disappointed the way that the team was funded and structured, and um, uh, and the lack of effort they were giving me. I was just like, I didn't want to be just a, a face in there, a, a publicity stunt. I wanted to be a serious competitor and to be winning. And that's what I was pushing for: was time in the car and to have a better professional. Surroundings, and um, that's when um, some people with the head of, of Holden said, "Go and get the sponsorship, and we'll give you the give you the product." 
So I did. I went and got it, and uh, Coca Cola said yes. And then, uh, and then that was about Bathurst in '93. And then Tom Walkershaw turned up and said he that uh, he contacted me. And I sit in his room, and him and Fredo said that I was I was uh, mutiny. I was trying to steal their team, and I said, No, I'm not. I'm not trying to steal it. This is Holden's request. And they went, No, it's bullshit. And I said, No, it's not. And um, so then Tom Walkinshaw at the end of the day was I, that's the year I finished third at Bathurst. In fact, that was my first year in the in the factory car, and. Uh, it was not bad for a first time, wasn't it, for a, a good go at Bathurst. And um, well, I had a huge argument with Tom Walkinshaw and said no. And so at the end of the day was he gave me the ultimatum, sent him the money, which was uh, a couple of million dollars, to England, and I'll have a seat in the car. <laughs> and, I, and I said, I came out of it, and he said, it's my theme, and you're not getting it. And I went, but it's not me requesting this. This is Holden. And they go, no, you're lying. So, um, cut a long story short, uh, I finished third at Bathurst. Uh, I walked away, and if I didn't send in the money, I wouldn't have a drive the following year. So, I went and visited. Um, uh, I called Tom's secretary or Tom Walkinshaw in England when I was in England soon after and um, said, look, I thought about it. Uh, it's not happening. I don't want to do that. I don't want to be handing you $2 million and you give me no effort, and yet you don't change the time. team. So he said, well, you don't have the drive. So that's how I then took that money and then turned it into the Wayne Gardner racing team because I bought Bob Forbes' operation with Crompton. Mm. And that's how it all happened. It was because of Holden. Holden wanted me to do this. So, and and then I, I then turned it in my own team. So, Wayne, did when you went to HRT, did you have a multi-year arrangement with them or, or just the one year? No, just one year. Right. Okay, and, and because I, I think I think it was I think it was more of a PR stunt more than anything. Even though I was quick, um, but all I was asking for was time in the car and to get some experience up before I go into a championship. And um, uh, during that year, and uh, at that time, Holden were they were trying to find sponsorship. I had the dangling carrot of two million dollars, and um, Tom Walkinshaw wanted his bank account in England. So it wasn't go, it wasn't going to the cause. So I went, well, I'm not going to lose anything with this, am I? So because I won't have a seat anyway. So uh, I then I then then Brock came along and they brought he brought along Mobile, and that's how it turned into the Mobile Racing thing. I remember too that you were benched for the Sandown 500, and they brought Alan Grice in to to drive. So I guess the the relationship by that point was was pretty testy. How did that meeting with Creno go down? Ah, uh, Treno uh, is a difficult man. Um, he's obviously projecting his own ass and Tom's business. Uh, and, you know, it, it, they seen me as this pirate that was coming along trying to steal their team, and I wasn't. It was it was with the blessings of Holden. And when I put it back to them like that, they went to Holden. Holden denied everything and, well, said they didn't want to do it and said, sorry, we can't help you anymore, but we'll sponsor you. So... I then took the money and got Holden sponsorship on top of what had already happened as, I guess, uh, as a as a saviour to it all. So you, as you said before, you went and bought Bob Forbes' existing team up there in Sydney. He was running a, a single car for uh, with GIO and, and Neil Crompton, so that all became 
WGR, yep. Coca-Cola, two-car team, you and, and Neil, uh, Wally Story involved, um, a pile of the people yep. who've been working at the... He, he, Alan, he, he, yep. he came in to yep. manage the team. Uh, he'd been in car racing and rally teams and everything, so he had a lot of experience. And basically, I in a short, very short period, I had to buy, buy um, Bob's outfit out, which he wanted to get rid of, and I, I brought Crompton, who's amazing off-track stuff, you know, and uh, and I'm a good driver as well, so that's how I did it in, a, in like a, a in no time, you know. So I wasn't put in that. I didn't want it that position, um, and I didn't even want a racing team. But ended up being like that because of Tom Walkinshaw and John Trevor and Holden. And Holden then at the end of it came and gave me gave me sponsorship of you know quite a bit of money and put Holden down the side of the car to save face out of the whole thing. So I was out of HRT, um, Walkinshaw didn't want me around, and um, I had to go and start my own show. Otherwise, I'd be sitting on the side, and and I wanted to take the sponsorship and use it and grow a team out of it. And, I, and, and it wasn't what I had originally planned, but that's what happened out of the whole thing. And so it wasn't my ego building a race team. It was actually forced upon me by Holden. Mm. And you re- I remember you, you won your last race with HRT at the Adelaide Grand Prix as well. So uh, how did, normally that would yeah. be a big celebration, but I guess that was a little awkward, would it? wasn't it not? Uh, I won, but for me, I just think it takes the smoke off their face, you know. So, uh, um, look, it was a sad ending to it all. Um, it's disappointing because I did want to stay there, and but not under Crano's, um, uh, you know, difficult terms and uh, not under Holden threw me under the bus and left me. You know, so I got run over by Tom Walkinshaw and Creno, and uh, I was a bit battered and bruised. I went, you know, like, fuck you guys. I'll go and do my own thing. So um, I didn't want – I wanted to use the sponsorship of of Coca-Cola and uh, because they've been a great supporter of mine. And I then took them into the, the – I converted that into a team in Sydney and – and align myself with Coca-Cola rather than with HRT in Melbourne, you know. So that's how it happened. And um, and that lasted for many years. And then you know, I then moved on out of there, went to Japan. We'll get back to the podcast in just a moment. But I wanted to quickly tell you about our good friends at Timken, a world leader in bearings and mechanical power transmission products and services. Now, you might know their name and recognise their logo, But did you know that Timken bearings are used in some of the world's largest wind turbines? Some standing as tall as 260 metres, that's almost twice the height of the Sydney Harbour Bridge, and with rotors as big as 220 metres in diameter, that's almost the distance from the start line to Hell Corner at Mount Panorama. Now these rotors turn on big shafts, and at each end is a massive Timken tapered roller bearing. The biggest one with an outside diameter of 3.425 metres. That's about three quarters the length of a supercar race car. The bearings have to be perfectly reliable in withstanding massive loads and in extreme conditions like in the North Sea, where a single turbine is expected to produce enough renewable sourced energy to power 16,000 European homes year round. We'll bring you some more cool facts about Timken in each episode of the V8 Sleuth podcast this year. Now, it's back to the podcast. It's a great insight to take us back to when the V8 formula was really just kicking off. 93 was when the, the Commodore Falcon thing kicked off and the turbo cars 
departed what had been Group A touring car racing. And then, as you say, the, the, the Coke team ran for, I think, three or four years. You had some great runs at Bathurst, you and Neil. You had a, a podium in 95. You had fourth in 96. It always felt, though, like, Wayne, you, you were fighting against the bigger team. Like HRT had more cash, clearly. DJR were pretty well funded. But the tyres at the time, that's well, before control tyres. Yeah, that's right. Before control tyres, you hit the nail right on the head there. Um, when I went and started my own team, I was when I was with HRT, I was using um, Bridgestone. And they were the best tyre by a long shot. And after, uh, after I started my own team, Holden or Prennan, went to Bridgestone and stopped me from accessing any good tyres. And uh, that fucked me because the only option I had was Bridge was Dunlop. Um, at that time, was not a very good tyre and uh, or Yokohama. So I took what I could out of it. Um, I'd say it was probably two seconds a lap slower, um, the Dunlops at that time and, and Yokohama's. And I, we tried our best with what we had, but I, I begged and pleaded and offered to buy and you name it at any cost, um, Bridgestones, but Bridgestone um, aligned themselves with Holden and HRT and would not sell me any tyres. So that that screwed the, the potential of the team. It was very hard. Um, Wally's story was engineering his brain out to try and get around that. We did lots of combinations. We went testing a lot, which was, the plan that what I wanted to do anyway to, to gather up the speed, um, but you know without the grip on the road you can't do much about it. We were trying all sorts of combinations of suspension and you know, but the good thing out of that is I learned a lot about the dynamics of a car, so I got pretty handy at it in the end, and I found a lot of speed and I pulled Crompton along with me. Um, but certainly, and on the day on the race day, if you don't have bridges, you weren't in the picture. So. Uh, and we didn't have Bridgestones ever um, at, at WGR team, so unfortunately, and um, and that that was the demise of the team eventually through the results because we couldn't fight with one arm tied behind our back. It's impossible. You mentioned Neil just before we had him on the podcast a little while ago. I, I've worked with him a lot in the last decade or so. He is scarily organised. I've dug through a lot of his material at his office when I've been working on some projects. He's kept everything. He's got schedules from 1994 Coke ride days. He's got all sorts of stuff. What drove you insane about Neil, and what did you love about him? Uh, well, Neil was a big asset to the team. Um, he's incredibly good uh, off the track, incredibly good and naturally talented TV commentator. His detail, his perfection for detail is incredible to see and he actually taught me a lot it was actually good having him in the team he was a great teammate we laughed a lot we had some good times and he wheeled the car around the track pretty good i don't think he was ever a world champion at um the touring car but uh, and he's driving but he's certainly quick and he was certainly dedicated and focused and looked at every little minor detail to improve his speed um so yeah it was it was good having him um because more importantly, besides being a, a pretty good driver, more importantly, he was exceptionally good in his off-track skills, and that's helped us grow fast, helped us you know, go to sponsors. I don't know how many times him and I have sat in front of sponsors, uh, knocking on the door and sitting at their desk, and he's gone through his, his 
his blurb and tells the story and, you know, he's a, an incredible spokesman um, for any operation, for any TV broadcast or company or any sponsor or any race team. So I was happy to have him on side and I felt I was lucky, you know. So good guy, good, we're good mates. I make him laugh and he makes me laugh. And But, um, yeah, it was just disappointing we didn't have the successes. And it's not because of his skills. It was not because of the team. It was because we couldn't get access to any good tyres, and Cromley will back me up on that, you know, if you give him an ask sometimes. Yeah, uh, no, for sure. It was pretty difficult in that period when the control tyre discussion was had for a long, long time, but it took many years for it to finally come into play. Uh, 97, I remember, Wayne, the first uh, round under lights at Calder Park in Melbourne was the start of what we call the V8 supercar era because of IMG's involvement. And you swapped to Yokohama's that year and instantly under lights, you won that round. Did you feel it that? And that was, though, the last year of WGR full-time. So was that a case of um, finally getting some success but knowing that behind the scenes it's getting harder and harder to keep this thing going? Yeah. Uh, well, I knew that, you know, we had the Olympics coming. What year was that, Aaron? Uh Olympics were 2000 in Sydney and the win was 97 at Calder. Yeah, that's exactly right. The I knew um, at that time that I'd been told that Coca-Cola were going to reel in the sponsorship, um, primarily because of the Olympics that are coming and they've got to gather up funding from all the nations and countries around the world. Uh, and that budget that we had in in the car racing... Um, needed to go towards that. So I knew that it, was, uh, it wasn't going to last forever. However, I had a very good run from their support, uh, and that's that. And, uh, and, but I never could access good tyres. We got the Yokohamas to work at Calder, in particular, I think it was an afternoon-evening show, mm. wasn't it? Yeah. If I recall. Yep. And, um, you know, we worked pretty hard with the car and, uh, you know, I got faster and Tommy got faster and, yeah, I had a, I had some good results and wins, which was good. Um, however, I knew the long-term picture was not good because of the, um, the drying up of sponsorship and I was trying to look for more at that time and probably, probably most of all, was looking for sponsorship for it, the security seat. And um, in a two-car team, but it was getting harder and harder, and I could see that the rules were changing. Uh, um, and I just thought, you know what, I'm fighting against, uh, I'm swimming against the river here, and I'm going backwards. Um, Holden and had stopped any support of of us um, because the results weren't there because I couldn't get the tyres, etc., uh, etc. Et and then Coke were getting a little bit frustrated through the results um, as well. And uh, we were trying to tie in other sponsors like McDonald's or the people that had um, partnerships with Coca-Cola. And Cromley was working his ass off off the track, but with a lot of no's. And, you know, there wasn't enough TV coverage. I mean, it's different to these days now. And I could see the rules changing. And um, I went, you know what, it's time for me to change. And then I got invited then to go up to Japan and try out a GT car for Toyota and I went up there and I broke a lap record in it and I went, well, that's pretty good. Um, and they said, oh, can you bring sponsorship? And I said, no. And uh, they said, oh, don't worry, we want to sign you up just like HRT, funny as that. <laughs> but this was for TRD. And I went, that sounds good. So I decided then that, you know, coming and turning up with my helmet under my arm and my race gear rather than the whole team is a whole lot easier. 
And I went back and talked to Coca-Cola Australia and they said, um, yeah, we want to wind it up, obviously the Olympics, and but we'll help you until we can get Coca-Cola Japan to assist. So they helped me uh, retain Coca-Cola's support and sponsorship out of, out of Japan. So I went up there and started racing for TRD for about five years or something then. Um, and so I changed. They had three or four teams and I kept changing teams put me in bigger teams and bigger teams till eventually I was with Tom's racing team, so with the best teams. So, yeah, I was quick, I was fast, I'd won races, um, and it was fun. I really enjoyed just driving the race car. Plus, the race cars up there were probably 10 or 15 seconds a lap faster than the touring cars in Australia um, with less horsepower. So they're ground-effect cars, and they were really, really exciting cars to drive. It was, it was like riding a Grand Prix bike, you know. In fact, Around Suzuka, we were we were fifteen or twenty seconds fast, fifteen or twenty seconds faster in a GT car than we were on a Grand Prix bike. <laughs> around Suzuka, that's how fast these things are. That's quick. And it was only fifteen seconds at the time. We were only fifteen seconds behind a Formula One time in a GT car. Whew. That's moving. That is impressive, isn't it? That's oh, you know, I've seen stories about. V8 want to challenge the GT cars, but <laughs> V8, uh, they'd be lapped in five laps, <laughs> you know, so uh, all of them, the whole field. So there was no contest, and um, but I loved driving those cars because they sat, you know, 20 mil off the road, the ride height, and you get down into them, you don't step into them. I mean, the roof height of that GT car was to my waist, you know, the roof mm. line. Mm. So... It shows you how low, how wide, and how big the tyres were. Plus, I had factory tyres up there and a factory car. And I went, hallelujah. And all of a sudden, we started going really good and winning races and having a great time up there And uh, as a factory driver with Toyota. And then I didn't have to run a race team. It was a whole lot easier in my life. And I, I was living back in Monaco then. I reckon the great irony was that you left Tom Walkinshaw Racing, but you ended up driving for Tom's in Japan. That's kind of ironic, I reckon. Yeah, Tom's Tom's Toyota, not <laughs> Tom Walkinshaw. It's different. Yeah, very yeah. different. There's a there's a difference. Huge uh, difference. Tachi, Tachi son, the owner, um, was a really nice guy, Japanese owner, and um, yeah, it is ironic that Tom's and from Tom Walkinshaw. So um, yeah, life moves on, and uh, I was much happier doing that and flying up. Or uh, I was in living in Monaco um, at that time, and I was flying back and forth and had my kids in Europe. You know, so. Oh. And um, having a good time, you know. So I, I I didn't complain about that and sold the team and, uh, as I said, made it a permanent situation. Uh, and then from there, I started, I did, did Le Mans as well uh, in a group um, uh, LMP, LMP2 car um, with Didier and, oh, I've forgotten the other rider, uh, driver. Uh, yeah, no, uh, I, I, look, I, looked this up. I, I looked this up because I thought we might talk about it. 1998. Uh, a Riley and Scott chassis yeah. with a Ford V8 engine with Didier Deradigues, the former Grand Prix motorcycle rider, and Philippe that's, Gachet was the other driver, yeah. Frenchman. That's right. That's correct. Thank you for reminding me of Philippe Gachet, yeah. Um, that was a last-minute deal pulled together by Didier, and I then paid with it with sponsorship from Coca-Cola. You'll probably see pictures of the car um, with the big logos down the side and on the front. Um, that was pretty much what I like to do, international events like Japan GT. And I tell you what the Japan GT series did. It taught me a lot about ground effect cars and 
how to drive, you know, and how to use more throttle in the turns and use the downforce to find grip. So, you know, I'd moved on. When I when I came back and drove in Australia, like the Stone Brothers car, I was quick in it straight away. That wasn't the problem, you know. It was, it was easy to drive and it felt slow, the touring cars. When I drove in the GT cars, mate, your eyes are out on stalk because they're so fast into the end of the turns. And um, at that time, we had ABS brakes as well and carbon brakes, and you have no idea how fast those cars were. Um, not a lot, not a high top speed of only 300 kilometers an hour, but wow, the corner speed is unbelievable. It was just scary. You know, it was, it was way faster than a motorcycle or Grand Prix bike, you know, so um, the corner speeds. And, and that's what gave me a big thrill. And then I was mixing them with international drivers rather than all the Aussie drivers, you know, like Dick Johnson's and people like that. So that all they did was complain. So I, you know, that, I shouldn't be out there and that I wasn't good enough and I'm just thinking they're kidding themselves, you know? So uh, obviously I ruffled a lot of feathers in Australia, particularly the old the old brigade, And um, but I had fun doing it. It was kind of cheeky of me, and but I enjoyed it. Um, but again, I, my hands were tired because I couldn't access any good tyres. And that was the you know the undoing of the team, essentially, um, plus the Olympics coming, and that was why it was the, I folded the team up. That, that last year of of WGR was was 97 and then for the next two years you, you ran with Coke sponsorship but you just did the big races Sandown and Bathurst and the Grand Prix in Indy um, and I think you, you had a, a Larry Perkins car there for, for one of the years with David Brabham but I, I vividly remember that you and Neil were really strong in that last Bathurst that you did together in 97 before the team closed and the engine blew at the top of the mountain and you were in front that's got to be the Bathurst that got away from you Oh without a doubt look that's that race has slipped out of my hands a couple of times, you know. You probably even remember when I was driving the Ford as well and I put it on pole by nearly a second in the wet and I didn't make a big start, but I came through, got into the lead and pulled away and then my teammate Bates bunkered it, you know. So uh, that was another time when I just left everybody in the, in, in the wake, you know. So uh, um, so I've had a, a number of times where I've yeah, put on pole, I've led the race, I should have won it, but... You're probably right, 97 was heartbreaking because we were going away and disappearing, even with Yokohama tyres, you know. So um, we were pretty pleased. I think the car was working good. I think the team was working good. Um, but unfortunately, the engine shit itself over the top of uh, Skyline. And, um, you know, uh, if I remember, I, hit, I can't remember if I hit the wall or not, but it it come to an end, the grinding halt. Um, the engine just blew itself to pieces, and um, it's disappointing because we were in the position then and the timing of it to just go out and win the race from there on because we were real we fast, you know, and uh, that was a very heartfelt, disappointing race um, for for WGR, you know, and um, it, it, it was the last, last nail in the coffin, you know, to be honest, and... Uh, I kind of gave up from there, and as I said, I found that it was easier to go to Japan and go and drive it in Germany or drive at Le Mans or other things and become more international out of it and uh, and up against more serious players and good drivers. And, you, you know, I've never been afraid of, of um, racing anybody because the stiffer the competition, the better, because if you're going to be good enough, you raise to the occasion. You learn from those experiences, and, and that's what I tell Remy now and... Uh, you know, as he's going up through the through the ranks and different competition is better, you know, because at some point you have to learn how to do it. And if, 
Otherwise, you're not going to be a world champion. So that's the way it is. And so I've never been afraid of competition. I, I see it as a challenge, and that's where my competitive streak fires up and, uh, and I roll my sleeves up and say, okay, what needs to be done here, and let's go and do it. So I take from this all, did, did you feel like the local touring car stuff was the real small pond, big fish, uh, closed shop type of mentality, and you copped probably more of that than anybody else? Uh, I've really never said this before, but yes, <laughs> to be honest, because people like Dick Johnson and, uh, and Brocky and Scaifey and a few of these people, they gave me a hard time. I mean, they weren't kind with me, and here I am. I, I had little experience, and they knew that. And they knew where to tap me and push me around and so on. So I, I didn't have that experience. And that was what I was trying to gain in the beginning. But I certainly was fast enough. And I think it took the smile off their face. So, you know, I've, I've, I've beaten those guys, all those guys, at some point. Um, but on a consistent basis, I needed a budget to go out and do it properly and do it consistently and do it uh, how I know I can win eventually. And I proved it many times over, but unfortunately, I didn't have the, the team and the, the equipment around me and underneath me to provide that at the time. Um, yes, I think it was, uh, um, you know, you're right, a big fish in a small pond in Australia. So they they wanted to teach me some lessons, and, but that's okay. I don't mind. I think it's funny now. Um, but certainly, a lot of the accidents and a lot of the, you know, the shunts I had was certainly not my fault, I can tell you. Um there was a bit of jealousy going on in there and uh, there was a, you know, they wanted to show that you can't come in here and show us how to do this. Well, I'd like to see all those drivers on a, on a bike. Let's let's see who, who has that many crashes then, you know, if we're in the same event. But it's not going to happen. Um, however, I learned from it. I, 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 I'm not afraid of the challenges. I'm not afraid of the issues. But at the end of the day was... Um, Aaron, it came down to not having the equipment and not having a budget good enough to go out and do it properly. You know, when I had Coca-Cola sponsorship and holding support and I had some good people around me to do it, um, but I didn't quite have enough money to do a proper engine development program. Um, however, I, um, I, d- I didn't have the, the, the backing then and the tyres underneath the car to make it happen. So whatever which road I went to, I was, um, it was blocked, you know? So, but... You know, take the experience from it, learn from it, and move on. You know what I mean? Because there's bigger pitches and bigger, there's bigger races and bigger ponds to go and swim in. And that's exactly what happened when I went to Japan and went to Le Mans and went to Germany and did touring cars over there. And, you know, I could have survived easily in Germany, you know, to do that. But I just wanted to go back to Australia after my bike racing career to do, to be Australian. Plus, I had little kids coming. Mm. You know, I wanted to raise my kids in Australia. So, you know, again, and I keep, saying it again and again is that I wanted to go and do something to distract me from going back to bike racing because many times after many accidents uh, in the touring cars and, you know, the, 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 the management skills, don't forget, I wasn't just a driver, but I owned the race team. So I had about 10 caps in the team to wear and it was, it was getting to me. And then the politics on top of all that drove me insane. And that probably, between the crashes and drivers treating me a little bit unfairly and... Um, and the politics of it all, that was all too hard for me. And um, and not getting tires on top of that, it was time to leave. It was time to move on to greener pastures and take that experience and go and do bigger and better things. That's what I did with Japan. Mm. So I was really happy to that at the end of the day because I ended up driving a super fast car and get better skills from it 
And all of a sudden, when I was driving with the touring car drivers in Australia, it wasn't. It was pretty easy. Then it was easy competing against them. Mm. You know, with a good car underneath me. Yeah. So yeah. as you probably seen what I did with with Glenn Seaton's car. So you know, your skills go way way up if I moved away from those guys and. And that was pleasing to know that personally because at the end of the day is it wasn't my skills was the problem. It was uh, budget and, and, and restrictions like tyres and so on. Mm. So I can walk away with it with my head head held high. And, and again, I, I reiterate that a lot of these accidents were not my fault. I can tell you that. But, uh, you know, I, 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 was, I was green at that whole thing and I admit that. And, um, but they could have treated me a little more fairly. And, but that's the way it is. But I have no... No issues with it about it now because I think it's funny. So that's part one of our chat with Wayne Gardner on the V8 Salute podcast powered by Timken. Stay tuned for part two as we talk about his final appearance in V8 Supercars at Bathurst in 2002 and a very heavy shunt that wrote off a Stone Brothers Falcon. We talk about that Formula One test with Lotus from 1993. We run him through the National Motor Racing Museum couch racer questions and the Motor Focus top 10 shootout. Now, if you are a keen V8 Sleuth fan or a motorsport fan of all kinds and you love to read, we've got stuff for you. Head to our bookshop, bookshop.v8sleuth.com.au. We've got a bunch of items there, including the brand new Dick Johnson Racing DJR Tim Pensky Cars book. It's limited to just 3,000 copies. They are all signed by Dick Johnson. Jump in, order one, make sure that you don't miss out. And of course, while you're at it, save on postage. Buy some other stuff while you're there. The Falcon Files magazine, Bought at Bathurst, our limited edition book of every photo of every year of every Falcon and every Mondeo and Sierra and Cortina and Escort and every Ford at Bathurst. Jump on in there and grab a copy and uh, make sure you add those to your bookshelf as well. You can sign up to our V8 Sleuth newsletter. Follow us on social media. Uh, We've got all sorts of things going on in terms of content with the website. And, of course, uh, keep following, keep in touch, keep your questions flowing and keep the communications rolling via social. We love to hear from you as well. So in the meantime, that's part one out of Wayne Gardner. Make sure you listen to part two of Wayne Gardner on the V8 Sleuth podcast, powered by Timken. The Shannon Speed Series is back and heading to Race Phillip Island on April 12 to 14. And we can save you 15% on tickets. Head to motorsporttickets.com.au, enter the promo code SLUTH15 in the box, and you'll be seeing a lineup of cars and categories that's bursting at the seams. There's the Fanatec GT World Challenge Australia powered by AWS, the Super Cheap Auto TCR cars, Trico Trans Ams, Monochrome GT4, Porsche Michelin Sprint Challenge, and the Workhorse Radical Cup in a packed schedule of racing. Friday's free, 35 bucks for Saturday or Sunday, $60 for a weekend pass for adults, kids 15 under are free. It's great value for the whole family to enjoy, and that's before you use the special Sleuth promo code. Be there for Race Phillip Island, April 12 to 14. Book now at motorsporttickets.com.au. For the latest in Australian and World Rally news, join me, Luke Witten, from Rally Sport Magazine on the Special Stage Rally Podcast every week. It's news, insight and analysis with big names in the sport joining us regularly to talk rallying of all sorts. Catch the Special Stage Rally Podcast now, available via the Motorsport Podcast Network on all your regular podcast apps.